Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 11, The Phone Calls. Hey everyone, I know it's been a while since you've heard from us, but we are going to kind of have an open discussion episode today, and we're going to start by talking about the interview you guys heard in our last episode from Tom Williams. So there were a couple things that came out of the interview with Tom Williams that we wanted to cover a little bit deeper, and one of those things is the discussion that we were having with Tom Williams about the phone calls that Carolyn received. In this day and age of cell phones, it's hard to remember a time when we had phone home phones and our numbers were listed in the phone book or people could call information to find our number. Sally's sister Carolyn still has a home phone. One reason for keeping it is that over the years, many people have reached out with tips and information on what happened to her sister. Letting go of that phone would be like letting go of a lifeline of hope that someone out there still knows something and could reach out. Many of those phone calls brought more questions than answers. Take the phone calls made to Carolyn around 2006 to 2010. We're not exactly sure of the exact date, so we're tracking them down based on when she was writing letters to the Iola newspaper. These calls would have come shortly after she had written one of those letters. Two different calls came in, and from Carolyn, she says not only were they two calls from different callers, because the voices were different, but they were from different numbers. They were roughly about two days apart. The caller told her that one evening when he went out for drinks in the 1970s, he was sitting with a man who told him that when he was in school, they had picked up a girl at the game, possibly Sally. That they were about four boys riding around in the car and they had taken the girl to a building. When Sally discovered that she was going to be molested or raped, she attempted to run away. At that point, she ran into a glass window. The glass broke around her, cutting her, and she was out. The boys panicked, thinking she was dead, so they threw her in the trunk of the car. But Sally was not dead. She was able to break free from the trunk, escaping on the road, and when the boys saw her running, they went after her, hitting her with a car and killing her. The boys were so scared that they dumped her on the dirt road and left her. The caller said that the boys were part of the class of 1968 or 1969 and that Carolyn should check yearbooks for the men, that these boys, who were now old men and one had passed away, they were friends in school and continued to be so even today. They even would take vacations together with their wives. One of the callers also said, check out the Iola Glass Company. Ask them who replaced glass around the same time. The caller also dropped one more hint. He said that the man who had told him about this worked with him at the poultry plant and they had gone out for drinks one night after work. After these calls, Carolyn contacted the KBI and the Iola Sheriff's Department. The KBI took them seriously enough to come out and get her phone and to ask her a bunch of questions about the calls. 
at this time, Carolyn had caller ID. So the numbers that the phones were calling from were visible on the ID. A little while later, Carolyn contacted for them for an update. They said they did all they could, but the phones that had been used were burner phones. And so there was nothing that they could do to figure out who would place these calls. Tom talks about this in his interview also, and he says the same thing, that these phones were cell phones with un uh, numbers that could not be traced back to any individual. Well, the one thing I have to say, you know, throughout this investigation that we've gone down is at least they cared enough to come and get Carolyn's phone in the records that would be on that caller ID. You know, we just don't know how many would have been displayed or now they might have more of a reference in connecting like burner phones, quote unquote burner phones, but then they probably had no idea. And I don't even know how many times like our phones were even registered when you had a Nokia cell phone back in the day. You know, like now you call somebody and it's like gonna say Gretchen or Morgan or Scammer or Kroger or whatever. I just don't think it was doing that then. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, at least they cared enough to go get the phone. I mean, they did go all the way up there and took her call seriously. I wonder how seriously they took it, mm -hmm. okay? Because I know we're talking when cell phone technology is just really starting out. So you could, even like you can today, go in and purchase a cell phone at, say, Walmart and put minutes on it and not have it necessarily registered to you. But they still had the technology at that point in time to go to the phone company and get more information. They could have figured out, okay, so was this phone used only this one time to make this phone call and then it was never used again? Was the phone used to call other people? And if, if the phone was used to call other people, then did they track down those other people and ask if they knew who was associated with that number? Because yes, the phone may not have necessarily been registered to an individual, but this is a highly sophisticated thing. For somebody to go in and purchase a phone and make one phone call and then never use that phone again. That just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I would make, this would make more sense to me if they had used a payphone because we know those would have been available at that point in time. But the idea that somebody purchases a phone, and actually we're talking about two individuals purchase two phones that are not registered to anybody and the KBI, which would have had a lot more resources than the sheriff's department is unable to find out any more information about those numbers. That's surprising to me because even in 2006, if we put it out as far as 2006, they still would have been able to get information. They would have been able to find out what tower that phone came off of, how many other calls that phone made, who those other calls went to, whether or not that phone was still active or current. And I'm, I get it. They're not sh going to share all that information. But then this whole idea that these were burner phones, like the per people involved in this are some sort of drug cartel. I'm sorry. Okay, but oddly enough, as you're going on this intriguing little rant of yours, which is actually very nice to hear. Um, 
when I think about where I was in 2006, it was in Nashville. In Nashville, no matter if, even if you had a gas station phone, you would have had one area code. The area code there would have been 615. Why I'm kind of bringing that up is when I moved to Texas and that was in 08, 09, something like that. So I moved here and then they there's multiple area codes for one large city, but I didn't know how to use the phone because we used to just pick it up and you just, you didn't even have to hit 615. You just did the phone number. Right. So I moved here and then all of a sudden, every number you call has to have 10 digits. And that was just two at that time. So I don't know what it was like in Kansas, but if it's small town, kind of like where I'm from in, in Tennessee or the Nashville area, they had to be local. But the phone itself would have been associated with at least a 10 digit phone number. No, it definitely would have. But so on her caller ID, a 10 digit phone number would have showed up. Absolutely, but they would have known if it was a local number or, like, not a local number, I guess. It's like, right. when you're talking to me like that, I'm just thinking, you're right, because in my mind, I wasn't thinking that until you're talking about this is the KBI, they have those resources and that kind of thing. Like, you're right, they do. And they could have figured out where that phone Absolutely. was sold. Absolutely, yeah, because... You know, I don't even know what those kind of phones have been called, but let's say they were called GoPro or GoTech or whatever it is. Those certain type of phones would have only been sold at gas stations or those certain phones would have only been sold because we've seen it multiple times on it just it just investigations, me, you know, I think he's saying we did everything we possibly could with this tip. She's she's definitely telling us that they came by and got the information from her that they had. I just feel like there could have been done more with this. And I don't even know if this tip is, is something that we don't even know if it's true or somebody who's making this up. I mean, there are lots of reasons that somebody could have made this up, right? This could be just a prank. Well, yeah, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, it could be a prank, which we hate to say that. I hate to say that. You know, we don't want to believe that. And it's hard to want to actually make me believe that. But it has to still be in the possibility. And then two, it could be what I said to you was somebody trying to deflect their involvement. So say in the investigation, they were on to said person, then they deflect by this phone call. So they go looking somewhere else or it is somebody that knows something. Okay, so two things with that. So if it's a prank, we can clearly say this is not kids making these pranks because if it was, then why are they getting these cell phones? Yeah. And why would they even be invested in this? Right. So, so that makes you put more weight onto this because whoever did this, and it's not one phone call, the information that's given is through two different phone calls. We've combined it together into kind of, because there's so many similarities between the two calls, we've combined that information together. So it sounds like one call, but it's two calls from two different male voices telling roughly about the same story. Say that they're burner phones or some type of phone that they purchased that is not associated with them. Two people purchased phones in order to make these phone calls. 
then either there's a lot of truth here or there's a really good reason that that's being done. But again, I go back to they had the technology to know more about this then. I don't think that they do now. The KBI couldn't pull their file now and ask for information on those phones now. That's I'm that's sure lost. Those phones are long gone. Well, and that's the other thing. So when you talk about 10 digits, those 10 digits would have changed depending on where they were location yeah so if this was somebody out of kansas city or out of texas or somewhere like that those digits would have changed depending on where they were at which to me again would have given the kbi more information interesting to follow up on there too just as we're talking not that we asked tom about this but those digits the first three had to be specific to a region right Right. So which in that region, there couldn't have been that many places that were selling cell phones at that time. If if these people were out of rural Kansas, there could not have been that many places. There's still not that many. There, I've been there. Right. There's, there's not. There's still not that many places. Not in the town that she lives in. No. And, it, and there's like the one Walmart at the one Walmart. They're going to say they could probably specifically put those VIN numbers to those cell phones. You know how like you open your battery and it has those numbers? Those numbers are probably only shipped to that one Walmart. Again, which I feel like the KBI yes. could have gotten that information. Yes. I, I just think at the point in time when they found out that there was no person associated with those numbers, it just seems like they stopped. And I think that was a missed opportunity. I think we should cover a few more things that come in this call. A couple things that make you think that there's some real possibilities that this could be the the answer to what happened to her in this call. But there are some points in this that don't quite add up. Mm -hmm. And one of the points that doesn't add up is the fact that she ran into this window and was cut up severely enough that she um, was unconscious. Through what we have discovered with the little bit that we know from the autopsy, it doesn't seem like that actually happened. But again, this could be something that police have held back too. So there is a possibility that there were more cuts or there was that type of damage, but they didn't release that to the public. One thing, but it does in this sometimes make you think in that town to see who replaced windows. Um, So that's, you know, I mean, they, they seem to think that somebody there knew something. Yeah, but at some point with these calls being, they knew that and could have looked into it. So, and I mean, nothing that we can see came from that. It's hard to say, you know, what could have possibly come from mm-hmm. that too, because you're talking about many, many years. I'm really stretching it to say that they would have had those Especially types of records. age with no computers. Right. The other thing that comes from these calls is... The way they talk about, they thought she had already passed away and they put her in the car and then, you know, she gets out and they hit her with it. I mean, all things that we've concluded from this, that kind of statement rings true to us. Somewhat. Somewhat. So we did check out an older model Chevy Malibu. Um, A nice gentleman brought that by so that we could check that out to see 
a couple of things about that. Um, one was to look at the jack in the trunk and to see what that jack was like, what the pieces were like, to give us an idea of what that piece looked like that was left on the ground. That is something though that is not mentioned. You're right in those calls. I kind of get going to give that kind of information. Why didn't they give the information about the jack? Yeah. Um, it could be that somebody didn't realize it was missing until much later. It could be that the individual who told him the story was not the owner of the vehicle. So maybe he doesn't know that the jack was missing. But the one thing that we did look at there was, can you get out of the trunk once the trunk is closed? And there wasn't a way to get out of the trunk. Well, except for the back seat, right? Being able to push the back seat down because so, he was like you could push it down but then the way that she gets out of the car because it's a two if and again we don't know the actual make and model of the car because we don't have an actual suspect but if she goes out that direction it's a two-door vehicle so she's having to come climb over with four boys with four car. people yeah. it just doesn't seem like that's unless maybe they didn't get it closed real well I mean that's the other possibility but but not like today it's you don't have an emergency that you can pull to let yourself out of the trunk well and there wasn't the awareness because now we raise up our kids and stuff like you can kick out that light you can do this you can mm -hmm. but there wasn't that awareness if it's not true it's just hard for me to believe that the kbi couldn't have tracked somebody down and been like What's going on? Why are you making these phone calls? I guess for me, the hardest thing about this is if it's not true or this didn't happen, then why are you calling? What do you have invested in this to call? Other than the fact that sometimes people are cruel. One of the things that these calls did do is that Carolyn and her family spent a lot of years going through those yearbooks looking for possible suspects because of this call. And they would pick these yearbooks and go through these yearbooks and look for, you know, possible suspects. And again, if this wasn't true, the cruelty of these phone calls is shown in just that act of the family doing that to hang on right or doing that to find answers or you know yeah spending that amount of energy just to have some closure tom did talk about a couple of people some of them we're going to cover in a later episode but i think we'll cover one that wasn't on our radar so it was the first time that we were hearing his name was actually through tom and that was gerald fleming in in this area there are more there was more than one gerald fleming but the closest one that I could find was a man who would have been 28 years old in 1969. So this goes back to how would she possibly have come in contact with him? What I know about him is, you know, this was a guy who was a disabled vet. He served in the army. He did not have a whole lot of criminal record. He went to the hearing with his wife. His wife was there with his, uh, her mother and he got angry at the hearing. And so he assaulted both his wife and his former mother-in-law. And then he left the courtroom, went to the gambles, stole a 22 rifle and a box of am ammunition, went back to the Memorial Courthouse and attempted to carry that loaded shotgun to into the courthouse. At that point, he was arrested. So we do know that whatever he was up to wasn't going to be any good. Um, well, and, at least they stopped that. Yeah. Trying to figure out how this guy and Sally would have crossed paths. I mean, again, for me, too, it's like, unless she's 
going to church with this guy he's a teacher or like some relative or somebody i mean she was 14. that's a huge age gap there it is a big age gap there there definitely have been people who have come forward to us and said over the years there have been rumors that it could possibly be a married man this is a married man would have had a lot to hide but it trying to figure out how they would have been connected and again then going through the drive-through or going driving around getting her a burger that does seem like that would have been noticed well yeah and not all that behavior kind of seems like grooming behavior to me right so we don't know there tom didn't share to us exactly why he was on the suspect list just that he was a good suspect Okay, Gretchen, so with all of that being said, you do have an update for us from episode nine, Glenda's letter concerning the name that we dropped of Cowboy. Yeah, so with with more investigation, we have been able to discover who Cowboy is in Glenda's letter. What she was saying in her letter was that Ron Schaefer had a brother named Cowboy or went by the nickname of Cowboy. And we're not going to release his name, but we do know who she is referring to. The interesting part of that is that Ron Schaefer did not have a brother who went by the nickname Cowboy. He did have what appears to be like a very good friend. Both of these individuals were born in Texas. I don't know if they ever lived together like, and had... A brother relationship or they just kind of referred to each other as brother ron shaver went by the nickname boots and then cowboy went by the nickname cowboy he was born in texas but then moved to iola i believe in about 1958 with his family so he doesn't have any connection that i can see family wise to ron shaver but he does have a family connection to glenda so cowboy is actually glenda's ex-brother-in-law and i'm not quite sure why in the letter she doesn't necessarily say that but he was married to her sister they were married for a couple of years and then divorced they did have two kids and he remarried he was in vietnam i think he served for about six months in vietnam and then when he got back he does have quite the criminal uh record he was arrested almost too many times to count for drunk driving driving without a license leaving the scene evading police officers getting in car accidents leaving the scene of a car accident probably was drunk he was given a 30-day jail sentence and then a 90-day jail sentence for drunk driving all of this happening in the 1970s and then he also has a criminal record for trespassing breaking and entering stealing things from the co-op stealing things out of people's garages most of the time he was stealing batteries which i find this very odd and we talked about this a lot i'm like car batteries like repeatedly yes multiple occasions where he's stealing it's It's not like just like one isolated event i mean it's multiple times yeah that was extremely odd behavior to me i would think that 
at that point in time, they were a pretty easy thing to sell to somebody. So they you had think? a they had a, a value that he could sell to somebody who needed a car battery. My only other thought on that was there was something in them that you could make drugs with or do something with. And then I tried to look it up, and it was like coming up kind of blank on that. So yeah, I didn't find just any, my thought. You know, I didn't find any connection with him to like any drug arrest. Definitely a lot of drinking and driving arrests, though. Yeah, but, I mean, just because he didn't come up with drug arrests doesn't mean he wasn't, like, selling to somebody for that purpose. But, yeah, I definitely did not find a connection. You know, when you're going through somebody's garage or you're going through somebody's shed, it probably was something easy that he could make money off of. He broke into people's houses while they were home. He was married again and divorced again. Around the 90s, seems to get married again, kind of settled down, doesn't have the drunk driving charges, um, kind of cleans up his acts, and has passed away. Yeah, passed away around 2016. He does have a criminal record. I mean, it is it is something that's suspicious. Think that he would have been gone in 1969. He was in the military at least in 1969, and then deployed at one point, and I'm not sure the exact date of that, but it is around that time period, early, it is around that time period, either around 1969 or 1970 is when he goes away to Vietnam. So whether or not he would have been back in Iola at the time of Sally's death, I don't know. Again, the Texas connection is about the only connection that I could find to Schaefer involved with two sisters. Yeah, and I, I think the only other thing I could say from that is like, you know, if they're both born in Texas, then they'd be like, everybody just says, y'all are brothers, you're from the same place, especially in small. And all the only other thing that I could find is one reference where there's a reference to one of his children having a foster grandmother. Now, I do know his parents die when he's still a teen. And so it is possible that he lived with foster parents at one point in time. And it's still possible that Ron Schaefer had maybe foster parents. I don't know, you know, being able to release all sorts of records, which I'm, we're not the police. So we can't mm -hmm. definitely, there is a connection there to the, to Glenda's family. So our, I think our last point of discussion today would be the DNA. We do talk to Tom Williams in extent about the DNA. He does mention while he was over the case that he tested it, I believe he said twice. I think he, yeah. He says twice. Twice. Right. And, um, you know, when we're talking to him about new technology with the DNA and we're kind of talking to him, he had a certain viewpoint on the touch DNA aspect of it because he, I think, says that it's too sensitive. Think, to that point i mean not no i definitely think what he's saying about touch dna is that you when you're looking at touch dna it is so very sensitive that you can get transfer dna and i think from his perspective that may go too far a little bit but i think when we're looking at this and the technology that they would have had back when he would have been sending this in it would have been very very early on so they would have been looking for a large amount of the DNA. The first time. Right, to be able to the test. The first time, yeah. Right, yeah. I think even the second time they sends it in, they they would have been looking for less, but still still much larger than what, what would be looked at today. But interestingly enough, one of the things that he's talking about there 
is that they're testing her clothing. What's great about that is that then it means that her clothing is still preserved with the KBI today, and so further testing could possibly be done. But one of the things that they don't talk about testing, or he doesn't talk about testing, and we did send him a follow-up text through um, text message to make sure that we got some clarification on that, and he did say it was only her clothing that was being looked at. But I still go back to, to me, the Kleenexes, if they're still available, might hold the best answer. And even if you're talking about DNA being too sensitive, if you're looking at those Kleenexes and the way that Sally's killed, but still, that would be the type of DNA that you can't explain. That it's not going to be like transferred from sitting next to her at a football game. That'll be the type of DNA that somebody would have possibly shed skin cells, sweat, those types of things in. And if you had that DNA, that puts you at that. But we don't know if those Kleenexes are still available to be tested. But if they are, could that have possibly led to answers? Well, sure. I mean, any kind of swab or initial investigative tools at that time that were available that's lost was probably holding tons of information. Uh Tons. What we've seen in other cases is those things have been lost, but then later discovered. And so there's a possibility that that still exists, but maybe they're just in somebody's basement. Well, yeah. I mean, if it was in somebody's basement, I think, you know, you don't have it. It happens. It does. It does. But we've seen it happen when medical examiner's offices have closed. We've seen them, you know, when there's flooding or tornadoes, which they'd have there. I mean, there's multiple reasons why that could happen. Moving a building's, Whatever the case may be. It's but unfortunate, the other, but it happens. But the other thing is, from reading from the articles, we know that tests were sent to both Topeka and to Wichita. So is it possible that that still There's exists? Something there. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I mean, would there be a file possibly, or is it just unknown? We really will never know that. Again, it's a question you have to ask. You have to ask yourself that question. If somebody was starting to look into this case, could that still show up? And I think, yes, it's a possibility. You know, I still think the Kleenexes could possibly show up. It's just whether or not they have been preserved in a way that they could be tested. I also think there could be answers on Sally's clothing that could still be tested. Absolutely. The hope would be that these items could be located and that the KBI would send them back for further testing. Okay, but here's like a question and maybe, I mean, I don't obviously know if I'm going to ask you, maybe you don't know, our audience may or may not know, but these initial testing of DNA, if there's testing on that DNA, can they retest that tested DNA? Use that sample that was taken and tested, compare it again? Like how, like, or is that just like forever not usable? So, no, um, it would depend on what they had. Um, What he said, again, we did go back to him for more clarification, was he said when they examined the clothing and they tested for DNA, they didn't find any. Knowing how that worked, I'm thinking that when they examined the clothing, that they didn't find anything that they felt like they could test. Mm. And I think 
what needs to happen with the clothing is that that needs to be looked at again for the possibility of testing because what could have been tested back then might have had to be i'm sorry but from that same piece of clothing say they're saying oh no there's not enough and they use that same piece now I, we know they can go back and do that but if it's been declared unusable, can they use it? Yeah. So okay. if they if they had taken swabs of a piece of clothing and there wasn't enough DNA on it to test it at that time, say it wouldn't come up with enough markers at that time, then they can come back and use those exact same swabs nowadays and run them through. And they may have, the equipment is much more sensitive, so they may have enough markers now to look at. Um, or they can go back to the original spot that they felt like testing and take another cutting of it. Because what they would have taken would have been, even back then, would have been a relatively small cutting of something that they felt was worth testing. And they can go back to that same area and take another cutting and test. At that point in time, they may have taken really actually less than an mm -hmm. inch. Um, but now what they could possibly take is really about the size of a less than a pinhead. So they can take a swab. But again, we've also seen technology where they can now take the clothing and do like a vacuuming of the clothing yeah. and, and go well, after we it that way. That. When we yeah. were at CrimeCon, we actually saw, uh, was it MBAC? MBAC, yeah. Yeah, and so we actually saw how that was used and i remember thinking then like oh my gosh and then i, I was asking the guy five thousand questions and like i'm gonna need a smaller than that you know because they're showing you on this big not big but i mean you're talking you know yeah. like all the way around and you're just like okay but they're using that same thing on something very small yes so it's a very it's interesting y'all should look up a video on that um they're out there yeah what they can test nowadays is is minuscule compared to what they could have yeah. tested then but they may not have been able to test something as flat fragile as say the kleenexes or the kleenexes would have been a mixture of her blood and say somebody else's sweat and they wouldn't have been able to isolate those mm -hmm. mixtures where nowadays they can actually do that and back then if it had her blood on it they would have been saying no we're not going to be able to test that because that's her, her blood, blood her right hers only. Yeah. but now they can actually separate the two out and tell whether or not they have multiple contributors on something like those kleenexes and that technology was not available when he was doing that type of testing when he was sending away for that type of testing so where we've gotten to nowadays is is light years ahead of where they were at that point and at that point in time they also would have been looking probably for blood or semen to test and they wouldn't have been looking for sweat and nowadays they can look for that they can look for the possibility of testing that type of thing. So they can isolate her DNA off the clothes and try to find something else because we don't know whether or not he would have had any blood. But well, the... I think that's huge information regarding this case period, because we do know there's something testable and that's... there was something testable. There was, but that's probably the most positive thing that comes out of this is if there was something testable in the early 2000s, then they would have had 
they would have preserved it at that point in time for the possibility of further testing. So that's a great sign. You know what's crazy about that is when that was being tested, that's when those those calls would have come in. That's a good point. You know, that's pretty interesting. Somebody think about timeline. And he did say in the paper at one point in time that he was sending um, items away yeah. for testing. And so it could have been what scared somebody enough to make those calls to try to, you're right. I didn't think about it that way. Maybe that somebody was worried. Somebody was scared. Cause I told you, I mean, I was like, there's a couple of reasons why I can think somebody would do that. We discussed it earlier in the episode. I mean, now that we are having this farther discussion, it does make sense. Maybe. And I think there were a couple other things that were discussed in the episode with Tom that we're going to do in some follow-up episodes too. So just because these are the things that we discussed today, don't think that we're done kind of delving into some of the other discussions that we had. We do plan to bring those to you in some future episodes. I think the DNA might be the answer here. Yeah. That's the one thing that makes me the most helpful is that this case could possibly be solved through DNA. Or somebody come forward. Well, guys, it's good to be back. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.